Good afternoon and welcome to the Jason Rancho on AM 770 KTTH. We are streaming live on all those smart speakers like Amazon Echo and Google Home. The Seattle Times just can't figure out why drugs are flooding the streets of Washington. And that is what's trending. What's trending in the media? I've never had such a fun time reading through a Seattle Times report. And by fun, I mean I wanted to stab out my eyes multiple times and I couldn't actually believe what it was that that I was reading, but I knew that it would make for good content on a radio show. You see, this particular story written by someone named Lauren Gerges, she's got a piece out to try to explain how fentanyl is getting into the Pacific Northwest with an obvious focus on Seattle because this is the Seattle Times. And it manages somehow to ignore a pretty significant issue in that We have a porous border, but at the Seattle Times, you are not allowed to acknowledge that because this is a paper that is run by and delivered for the radical left. There are very few people who work there who aren't pretty far to the left. There are very few reporters there who even attempt to hide their bias. Just go to their Twitter feeds. It's all over the place. And if not on Twitter, you can just check out their normal stories which are almost always slanted to one side. It is odd to me how you can have a story about drugs getting into this country, which we know, and the story acknowledges, comes from Mexico, without having a significant focus on an open border. There's like this one sort of comment in passing that implies there's maybe a situation at the border, but that's about it. It's rather remarkable. And yet, as I was reading this pretty lengthy story, in large part because I have an entire chapter on this very issue, not just the Pacific Northwest, but for the entire country in my forthcoming book, What's Killing America, there was one sentence (laughs) that I thought was the most interesting. And again, by interesting, I mean maddeningly ignorant, almost to the point where I can't believe this was printed. And because I want to be fair, I'm going to give you the sentence leading into what I found to be the most interesting, because I want to give you the context. So here it is. In the past couple of years, the symptoms of this crisis have become more apparent. Overdose deaths involving fentanyl have surged. Less deadly opioids have decreased in demand. And policy policymakers are debating how to combat the epidemic. Here's my my favorite part. But why and how fentanyl is showing up in force in Seattle now, after years of ravaging the East Coast, is less obvious. Wait, what? It's less obvious why all of a sudden we have a surge of drugs flooding our streets? I mean, hold on. No, No, it is 2023. Sorry, I wanted to make sure... It's less obvious. Now, if this reporter believes what she just wrote in that sentence, and that's an honest reflection of her viewpoint, which is, I don't know. How the drugs get here? I don't know. Why all of a sudden? I don't know. If that's her honest position, she should be nowhere near a newspaper. Her word should never be printed again. Her byline should never 
be attached to any piece of journalism again if she truly believes that. In fact, if anyone believes what she just wrote and you're just like, oh, no, man, it's just a mystery. Why all of a sudden are we seeing all these drugs on our streets? Then you need to turn off MSNBC. You need to stop reading the Seattle Times and just Google fentanyl and Seattle and just just read some random stories. And it'll become pretty clear, I think, as to why. Um, The rise in drug use and drugs flooding our streets in Seattle and King County started in 2018 with the King County prosecuting attorney's decision to decriminalize personal possession of drugs, all drugs. Since then, every single year, we've seen a new historic high fatal overdose number every single year since 2018. And it had been steadily going up before then, but we saw the huge surge starting in 2018 when we effectively legalized drugs. And then obviously it got worse, not just in Seattle, but King County, although it's driven by Seattle numbers. Back during the Blake decision, I th- I think the Seattle Times reported on that, where the state Supreme Court invalidated our felony possession law, followed by Democrats in Olympia saying, yeah, we'll do a little bit of an experiment for the next two-ish years, three years. We'll just decriminalize. I mean, technically, we'll say it's against the law, but we'll create a policy that makes it impossible to enforce. And since then, drug overdoses have skyrocketed. This year, so far, King County has 892 fatal overdoses. Last year was 1,000. That was a new record. We're very clearly going to exceed that. And much of it is due to fentanyl. The reason why so many drugs are in King County and, frankly, all across Washington State and Oregon is because we legalize drugs. And drug dealers were all like, hey, I know what I should do. Sell more product there because it's legal. We can take advantage of addicts. We can take advantage of someone who maybe was before disincentivized to even try out of fear that they could get arrested and then lose their job or their scholarship or whatever it is. Let's go ahead and flood the streets with our product. They don't even have police officers there. They're not going to make arrests. It's it's now legal. And so they flooded our area with a whole bunch of drugs. Fentanyl is really cheap to produce and really easy to smuggle. It's much better, more lucrative for drug cartels and the cells that they work with in the United States, some of whom are in this country illegally, others are legal residents. It's so much more lucrative than trying to get heroin across the border or cocaine. You can only carry so many bricks of that product versus you can carry thousands and thousands of fentanyl pills, each of which you can sell for between, depending on where it is you are, between $1.50 and about $3. And even better, you can lace other drugs with fentanyl making those drugs even cheaper to produce, to manufacture, and then you sell them on the streets. That's why 
Seattle Times reporter, this isn't difficult to understand. This doesn't take deep dive research. I've done the research. It wasn't on this issue. <laughs> it wasn't on why. It was why things have gotten so bad. Why do folks on the radical left believe what they believe when it comes to drug use? And what has the impacts truly been? What have the impacts truly been? That's what I did my research on for my book. Now, the same reality is happening in Oregon, where they passed Measure 110. This legalized drugs across the state. And it's been an abject failure. There's been a 500% increase between 2018 and 2022 when it came to drug overdoses, just in Multnomah County, where Portland is. There's been a steady increase in 911 calls directly related to drug overdoses. Again, this is really easy to understand. And in Oregon, Measure 110, not only has it been an obvious failure, but there is significant buyer's remorse. There's a new poll that came out from Emerson College. I was on Fox Business earlier today talking about it. And the poll says that when folks are given the choice between fully repealing Measure 110 or just keeping it the way it is, 56% said, no, we need to completely repeal this. When you give a similar choice, which is just, hey, let's repeal some of what's in Measure 110, or do we leave the law exactly as it is, 64% of people said, yeah, we should at least repeal some of this. Specifically, as it relates to reinstituting penalties for drug possession and drug use. So the tide has shifted there. I don't know if it's too late. And I just think about all the lives, innocent lives that were lost as a result of this, this experiment. You sometimes have folks, I think, disingenuously point to Portugal or Vancouver, B.C., saying, oh, well, they have... Vancouver has insight. They have heroin injection sites in Portugal just across the country. They legalize drugs. It's been a huge success. Except neither have been a success. Drug use and overdoses have been skyrocketing and continue to in Vancouver, along with the associated crime. And then Portugal, go back, I think it was July 23rd, something like that. New York Times had a huge feature story about how... The Portugal experiment is not at all considered by people on the ground, people who actually live there as a success story, that it's led to an insane amount of crime directly tied to drug use. It has disincentivized drug addicts to get help because there are no consequences. And even if they wanted help because there's so many addicts there now, they don't have space for treatment. So everyone talking about this, in a positive way, but, oh, look everywhere else. They're able to do it successfully. We should be able to, too. No, they're not doing it successfully anywhere. So here's a question. Why do you think the Seattle Times is pretending to not understand why we have drugs flooding our streets? Why do you think the Seattle Times is telling you, well, I don't know. I have no clue. Why? I posit that the reason why they do it is the reason why we never hear from radical left wingers that their policy has failed. They support it. They are blinded by their ideology. They're either ignoring the 
ill effects of their policy because it goes against something they truly believe in or they're so blinded they don't even see it. They're either ignoring it or they don't see it. And they benefit when you think a policy they've been promoting, when you think it's a success, they think they earn some points because they're on the quote-unquote right side of an issue. But it's, it's truly remarkable how shameless the folks over at the Seattle Times are to even consider putting that into writing. But other than that, it was a very informative article, and I'm so glad. I read it three times. It was that good. I mean, other than the last 15 minutes that I spent shredding it, it was top-notch reporting, and I'm frankly in awe. Let's get that woman a Pulitzer. Get her one. Okay, I'll, I'll call one. the Pulitzer no, you're people. standing there. Get her one. Oh, okay. She's deserving, and it's what, urgent. What color is the box that the Pulitzers are in? Get it out of the form of... Right there, the form in the orange. Just the regular orange. No, that's burnt orange, and that's sage, dummy. Orange. Your sage? normal what orange. Color is sage? It's like a greenish-orange kind of thing. Greenish-orange. Okay. There's something wrong with you, man. The literal company oh, president just walked in here. I Sorry. No I was flustered. <laughs> We're getting very close, I think, to, in this area, folks starting to turn the corner on this. I'm not certain, but I've gotten the feeling that maybe things are starting to change. Which is usually a bad sign, because every time I have that feeling, it seems like we end up disappointing myself, which is the story of my life. Push the button. What's trending at home? Kind of a bizarre story from King 5 on real estate, and they're basically trying to come up with some, what I think they believe to be innovative ideas, or I think they called it uh, the sort of -of out-of-the-box thinking on how to... handle a pretty tough real estate market. If you're in the Seattle area, generally we're talking about the Seattle Metro, there's too few homes on the market, which of course drives up rates and buying a home here even now. And even when things started to cool off, it was still pretty expensive. So they're saying, hey, what what can you do to buy a home given these circumstances? And they saw this luxury home listing in Crown Hill, which, by the way, ill. Oh, who wants to live in Crown Hill? It's right above. Yeah, Ballard. they make it seem it's like it's a, a really nice area. I know it's it has super spots, weird. but mm. but it's a luxury house, and they say it can be yours for just two hundred thousand dollars. And anyone who sees that would be like, "Whoa, a luxury, even a a stall, a shed in someone's backyard is usually more than two hundred grand." Let me. Sign up. It'll be a, a an investment property. But then, of course, there's a catch. And the catch is you would only own 25% of this property. So they then focus on a woman named Stacy who's in the housing market. She's looking for a home, but she, of course, is priced out like so many others. She spoke with King Five. The barrier to entry for a lot of people in this market is just the straight-up cost of buying a property. So King Five says... You would technically own a private room and bathroom for $200,000, and then across the hallway on the same floor, somebody else would own the home's other bedroom and bathroom for $200,000. You would have to be okay with sharing the whole downstairs, which comes furnished with the other occupant. It's called tenancy in common ownership. An investor would own 50% of the home. Each new owner would own 25%. Now, King Five is 
I, I read this and watched the package as if they were promoting this idea. I, I think the technical term is it's it's dumb. Uh, I so you're just getting a roommate, but you're sharing the ownership of the home with the roommate. Uh, okay, it seems like bad value. It really does. First of all, they don't really explain what the investor gets out of this. The fifty percent, uh, they they own fifty percent of the home. Okay, and I don't. Okay, so w- w- why is that important here? They're putting money into it, obviously, because the home is more than four hundred grand. That's my guess. Is it only four hundred and thirty grand? And they're taking the. So I don't know where that part comes in. But as a real estate agent in this piece points out. What if there's some sort of argument? Who settles this? If there were any conflicts arising out of it, you know, who ultimately will have a deciding factor? That seems like a reasonable point. What if you want to sell the home, you're 25%, and the people who own now 75% say, I don't like the person you're selling the house to. Do they get to say, tough luck? I, I it's very odd to me. This is a circumstance that could only work, I think, is if you're either doing it with family members and you do end up considering this as an investment property and you just put it on Airbnb, I guess. But I don't understand the concept. So for the people who are struggling with home ownership in especially Seattle, I, there's two things I recommend. Number one, don't buy a home in Seattle. <laughs> like, I get why you might want to. I mean, actually, I don't get why you would want to in Seattle, at least. But if you can't afford the city, don't purchase a home in the city. Wait until you either are in a position where you can afford it or just look somewhere else. This whole idea that you have to live in Seattle or in Tacoma, like in the main portion of Why? Says who? Says who? Well, if I'm buying a house, I do not want a roommate. But the, like I'm gonna wait. I'm just gonna wait. Yeah, you should wait now. Wait till I have okay, the money, which is never. But w- yeah, well, you're definitely not. Um, but if you're okay with the idea of a roommate, then just rent and get a bunch of roommates. Save money. Do it for as long as you personally deem it acceptable, and and that's going to depend on all, your age. It's going to depend on you know your relationship status, right? I can't imagine that if you're in a serious relationship, it's going to be a turn on. When you say, okay, let's go back to my place. Let me make sure my seven roommates aren't home. It's going to be a little bit awkward, I think. But but do it for as long as you can. Save money. And then at that point, put a down payment on a home. I mean, especially when you think about the fact that the rents here, if you are to live single in, again, the general Seattle area, just as expensive as a mortgage. Now, would any, should anyone buy a home right this moment with the interest rates up so high? No, 100% not. I definitely wouldn't. And I can technically afford it, but why would I spend, what's the interest rate now? Seven and a quarter percent, something like that? Like, that's insane. It doesn't make any sense. Even if you're only paying for 25% of a home. I, I don't get it, but I mean, if it works for you, um, I guess you thought out of the box. Thinking out of the box should be interesting and effective. This, this is neither. Well, this is a Maddie White story, so you got to uh, know what okay, you got to know what you're working with. That's fair. I didn't realize it was Maddie White. Push the button. What's trending? The sports ball. I'm fascinated with this first story because it's not really a story, but it's been made into a story, and I just don't quite understand. So, 
Maria Sakari is the number eight weed seed. Sorry, she's the number eight seed in women's singles at the U.S. Open. And she was pretty blunt during a recent match in which she ended up with an upset loss in the first round. She smelled weed while she was playing. And ESPN's broadcast caught her complaining of the smell. Oh, my God. The smell? Oh, my God. I I think it's from the park. (laughs) We were practicing here yesterday. It was the same. Is it Cal Anderson? So, that's interesting. (laughs) A smell from the park. (laughs) So, it was weed. Now, here's why I say it's not a story. And kudos to her, by the way. She doesn't blame it for losing. (laughs) Like, if she blamed it for losing for whatever reason, and, you know, I suppose... Well, I think most of us would reject it as a legitimate reason to lose. You would maybe say, well, I kind of understand why it was annoying. Weed does smell pretty gross. And if you have asthma, maybe it could. Although I don't think that that's true with weed and asthma. I've got asthma. I don't smoke weed, but I've certainly been around smelly. I live in Seattle. I've never had an attack because of it. But she said, you don't really think about it because all you care is just to win the match. I smelled it, but that was it. Like it wasn't something that I paid attention to. Sometimes you smell food. Sometimes you smell cigarettes. Sometimes you smell weed. I mean, it's something we cannot control because we're in an open space. There's a park behind us. People can do whatever they want. So how did this become a story? To me, the story is she didn't blame it for her loss. Because I feel like we kind of expect people to constantly make excuses, especially when you are as accomplished as she is, is the number eight in the world, or at least number eight in this particular competition, which is a significant competition. So kudos to her for just saying, yeah, I lost. I got a contact high out of it, at least. (laughs) 1-800-465-877 if you want to send me a text. You're listening to The Jason Rant Show. A couple weeks ago, we spoke with Ann Bremner. She was representing a family of a victim. Someone who was killed by a man who who admitted that he killed her on the stand. And yet that case was thrown out due to some irregularities within the prosecuting attorney's office in Pierce County. Rather than retry the case, they ended up giving him a pretty good plea deal. And it's got a lot of people wondering, why would they do that? We've heard two things. Number one, when the defendant is African-American, it's more difficult to get a jury to convict. And number two, right now, the Pierce County Prosecuting Attorney's Office has too few competent lawyers. Now, obviously, I don't know what's going on there, but someone kind of does. He used to work there. In fact, he spent almost 20 years. Now he's a defense attorney with Puget Law Group. Jared Osserer joins me now. Jared, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Jason. Have you heard either of those two rumors as to why we're seeing maybe some cases be resolved the way that they are? You know, I hadn't heard anything about uh, African-American defendants and creating uh, difficulty getting getting convictions. Um, I, I would say there is um, some support and at least some sentiment out there that there there is a, a lack of strong prosecution, I think, uh, primarily because of the failure in leadership in that office. Um, when it transitioned, um, I think that might account more for what we're seeing than, than race. I don't think race is involved at all. What is the issue within the office as far as you can tell? 
Well, Jason, I, before I left the office, I was the chief criminal deputy. I was the homicide division chief. I was the chief of the special assault unit. And I can tell you that the, the focus of the office, at least when I was there, <clears throat> was that we were obligated to try the cases that need to be tried and resolve the cases that need to resolve um, to appropriately serve the public. When a prosecutor comes in and fires six to eight attorneys, particularly those that are skilled at trying serious cases and replaces them with folks that don't, that causes another five or six to leave the office as a result of those, and you replace those five or six with people who don't, then you have a lack of, um, I think, leadership in that office that translates in attorneys that aren't equipped to handle the type of cases that, that Ms. Bremner's talking about. In your view, are they simply incompetent or are they just too young and they just don't have the experience? No, no, Jason, they have, a, they have a lot of competent attorneys in that office. Uh, I quite frankly, respect a lot of them. But when you lose the amount of attorneys they lost um, when they transitioned the administration, you have an inability to handle those cases or enough attorneys to handle those cases that are necessary. Uh, I mean, if you just look at my office, Puget Law Group, we have nine prior attorneys, uh, prosecutors at work here. We try those cases. We win those cases. And if you don't have that foundation uh, at the prosecutor's office, then you're going to see this sorts of things that Ms. Bremner's talking about, where a case that should be retried is not retried. Why do you think there was that sort of, I don't know, reorg? Why did they make so many transitions? obvious to me because I was involved. It's it's political favor by Ms. Robnett to the people that supported her, right? She she transitioned that office and, and removed a lot of people as um, as favor, in my opinion, to those that supported her and replaced those with folks that just lacked the experience uh, in state cases. And so when you, when you gut that number of attorneys uh, and don't replace them with folks uh, with similar skill and experience, this is the result. From the time that you spent there, could could you tell that the writing was on the wall, that all of these changes that were coming or that you feared could come would lead to this scenario? Oh, it was inevitable and, and obvious, quite frankly. Um, and so, um, in fact, I sent a text to Ms. Robinette before she took office saying, this is your opportunity to transition this office and, and heal it and, and move forward in, in the manner it should. Uh, and for whatever reason, they chose not to do that. Um, and so... It was, it was obvious to those that, that are close to the system. When you made that decision to leave, I have to imagine it, it wasn't easy, correct? I mean, you're going from prosecuting people that you think are, are a significant danger to the citizens. Yeah, I mean, it was obvious to me once uh, the primary election occurred that she wasn't going to retain those folks that were associated with Mr. Lindquist's administration. So I knew I was leaving well in advance of, of, of the time that she indicated she wasn't going to retain all of us. Um, and it, it, you know, that was that for the folks that she let go, that was their life. That's, they want to be a prosecutor forever. And so they've chosen other paths. In fact, I hired three of those folks that she fired at my <laughs> firm. And so, you know, that's why I say when you have the experience and, and, and mm-hmm. you can try these cases, you get results and, and failure to, to fill those spots in, in, in the same manner is, is why we're in this spot. I, I always think of Pierce County, at least when it comes to the current crime wave that we're seeing as a county that will at least charge where it isn't an automatic pass once someone actually does get caught. I, mm-hmm. I suppose that was in the context of King County. So where do you think things stand in Pierce County? Well, I think I think they still charge cases um, appropriately. The question becomes, what do you do with them once you yeah. charge them? 
right? Uh, because of COVID and the jail backlog, you got to make decisions. You have to decide where to focus the trials on and where to resolve cases. And when we're talking about the case that Ms. Bremner's talking about, a, a homicide case where somebody admits to committing a murder, well, you have to retry that case or reach a plea deal that satisfies the family that, that the result is just. And we're not seeing that. We're just not seeing that. Uh, and so, uh, you know, you see a lot of cases being tried in Pierce County. They have no reason being tried when there's other other cases that should be. So I think it's just a failure in leadership in, in putting folks in positions uh, where they have to make these decisions without any sort of guidance. Yeah, and, and there are obviously reasonable and, and logical reasons to offer a plea deal. Uh, in some cases, you know, there there are, you know, a witness who maybe isn't cooperating or you don't quite mm-hmm. have the evidence that you think you need in order to get a conviction. And so, you know, sometimes you're just put in untenable positions where you end up getting a plea deal and it's better than than nothing. How often is that the case? You know, you know, uh, Jason, it depends on the type of case, right? So some cases you have to try homicide cases, sex cases you're going to have issues. You're going to have proof problems on those cases. And so you have to do a cost-benefit analysis and say, look, the public deserves justice on this case. Um, what does that look like? What can we achieve? If you know you're not going to be able to, to uh, secure a conviction as charged, certainly you can negotiate something that's going to protect the public for as long as you can from that individual. Other cases, you just have to charge um, and, and try. And so it, it, it's just a... It, you got to have folks in those positions that understand those, evaluate those, and try to get the best result for the public. And we're not seeing that as much. Yeah. Uh, obviously, my next question might get you into some uh, uncomfortable territory as uh, <laughs> a, a, a lawyer who's actually in front of judges. But we've obviously seen a number of judges go easy on suspects. We've had many cases in which you know a, a suspect is released on their own personal recognizance. And uh, I know the judges like to point to Washington law that basically says there's a presumption of innocence to the fact that we would not impose bail. But that same law also indicates that you're supposed to take into consideration the safety of the community. It's not just about whether or not you think that person will come back. And I I don't even know how you truly make a decision like that when, you know, it, it might be a first time charge. Do you get the sense that judges in this state are going too easy on suspects? Uh, you, you know, they're kind of, their hands are tied a little bit, Jason. Here's why. So the court rules contemplate certain things, and, and they use um, binding language like an individual shall be rele- released on their personal recognizance, and they list some factors. And so oftentimes, if an individual has no prior history, those factors indicate that there should be either a low bail or, or a release. And the same goes with sentencing, right? And so if you're dealing with folks that have no history, and there's a plea bargain reached where they're given a specific range under the Sentencing Reform Act in the state of Washington. The judges have to sentence within those ranges. And so, again, I think it gets back to the prosecution of the case, because if if we're reaching plea deals where the range is such that folks are not getting the appropriate sentence, the judge really has no power on that. They can sentence them above an agreed recommendation, but it's got to be within the standard range. And so um, I think I think judges are doing the best they can with the legislation around those, and they obviously can't dictate what charges an individual either pleads guilty to or is convicted of. And so I think they're doing the best they can with, with, the, with the game they have in front of them. How much of the crime crisis that we're currently experiencing would you attribute to legislation, policies, specific you know, laws that have been put in place over the course of the last few years? 
Yeah, that's a great question, Jason. So, so I think what's happening is we thought we had a uh, a political movement with regard to police uh, brutality and um, defunding police. And what you're seeing is uh, police officers who are less willing to put themselves out there and subject themselves to prosecution. Uh, and so, uh, I, I think it's just a it's a it's a matter of the totality of the circumstances that are putting us in this in this odd situation that we have at this point last question for you just as a criminal defense attorney uh, how, how do you feel right now because of the crime crisis obviously that potentially means some increased uh, business for you yeah well it, it, it certainly certainly it's good for business but i'm i'm a i'm a citizen of the community like everybody yep. else and so you know uh I don't, I don't want my kids walking down the street and being victimized or my wife or my family being victimized and, um, you know, I think it gets back to the role of the prosecutor, hold those accountable that need to be held accountable. The Jason Rant Show. Let's bring in our man in the Pacific Northwest, KTTH, Seattle Talk Radio host Jason Rantz. Great to have you with us to tell people a little bit more about this. Jason Rantz is in focus now. Jason Rantz, thank you for your reporting on that. The Quick Hit. Well, obviously the polling that we talked about yesterday from the Associated Press about how Joe Biden is perceived as way too old is not sitting well with Democrats. And of course, Republicans are taking advantage, as they should. You had an overwhelming majority of Americans, 69% of Democrats specifically, saying they think he's too old. He's not competent because of his age to complete a second term. And, of course, that makes total sense. We all probably know, everyone who's listening probably knows someone who, maybe it's an uncle, a grandparent, a parent, who at some point got too old to be safe on their own. And you start to wonder about their health and well-being. You see them stumbling a lot. You worry if they're going to fall down and get hurt. You see them losing their train of thought mid-sentence. You see them repeating themselves. Now, everything I just said happens at pretty much every single Joe Biden speech. And in a world of social media, in a world of 24-7 news coverage, it's hard to cover up someone's loss of faculties. And I don't say that to be mean, I've made this joke before. I made this joke this morning on Fox Business. I said, just the other month, I threw out my back from a sneeze, right? So, you know, as we get older, our body reacts in certain ways. The difference is, the problem is for Joe Biden, me getting old at 41, but me getting old, I'm not starting any wars, except maybe on Twitter, I guess, and I'm not tanking an economy, But Joe Biden has that power, and we've already seen what he's doing on the economy. And when it's so obvious to everyone, so obvious to everyone, folks are rightly concerned. And the pushback that we're getting from some Democrats, some Democrats, is kind of interesting, because in fairness to Morning Joe, which is just unabashedly left-wing, Even they this morning said, okay, it's pretty obvious that this is a problem. That's the reality. Whether or not you want to believe that he's not capable of finishing a second term is on you. 
and they're still trying to pretend that he can, but they're saying this is the reality, this is how people view him. Then you've got folks like George Stephanopoulos over at ABC News. And we we talked about this the other day when Nikki Haley said that a vote for Joe Biden is a vote for President Kamala Harris. George Stephanopoulos in sort of this almost unhinged response, but he was angry. He was like, wait a minute, hold on, hold on. What is that supposed to mean? Why do you say that? What what gives you the, the impression that, like he pretends that no one can tell how old Joe Biden is. And then you've got his former Senate colleagues and obviously his advocates in Congress, whether the House or the Senate, in this case, Chris Coons, Senator from Delaware, pretending that we've never seen a statesman like Joe Biden going over the top in his praise because they're trying to combat the way he comes off. Well, President Biden is taking this issue head on by continuing to lead, by continuing to show at home and abroad that he is a capable and effective president. As I just referenced, uh, we haven't had as seasoned and capable a leader on the world stage in many years. And the contrast between what President Biden has done internationally to strengthen our alliances and to put us on a stronger, more capable footing and what his predecessor did is start. Oh, okay, yeah. Trump is the danger, not the guy who very clearly is dealing with old age. And as I said, you've got taking advantage of this news by highlighting the fact that he is too old to lead. And I say taking advantage of, I guess that has a a negative meaning, has a connotation that I don't intend to send. They are leveraging this perspective. They're highlighting it because... It's a serious issue, and obviously it helps Donald Trump. But I, I can play a whole bunch of clips from Republicans talking about this, but at the end of the day, let's actually hear from a voter. There, there's a voter who's independent. She was part of a panel for Fox News. Her name is Brianna. And, you know, she, she brings up a point that I think a lot of people have expressed, which is, and again, it's tied to his mental faculties. She doesn't even understand what the hell it is he's talking about. It almost seems like he's speaking in like word salad and it's not very clear to follow. And we need someone that's going to not only be able to express his needs, but the needs of our, our country clearly. Now, I don't know if she's someone who would feel comfortable voting for Donald Trump versus Ron DeSantis or Chris Christie or Vivek Ramaswamy, Nikki Haley. But she brings up a very valid point, and more and more folks, according to the polls, hold the same exact view. And the problem that this becomes uh, for for the Democrats beyond just the, the obvious is that this puts a bigger spotlight on the vice president. Kamala Harris, you would get the exact same response from Brianna on Kamala Harris. The only person who is less competent and less liked by the voters, Kamala Harris. So whomever the Republican nominee, let's assume it's Trump, I think that's a safe assumption still, whoever he picks is going to be important. Now, he could severely hurt his chances by going with like a Marjorie Taylor Greene or a Carrie Lake, or he can get someone who's competent, like what he basically did with Mike Pence. And obviously, Mike Pence is not going to be the choice, but... Mike Pence was a very solid choice because he was seen as the serious guy, the guy with the know-how, the guy who isn't just deeply religious, but he is sort of the polar opposite of Donald Trump when it comes to personality. 
So you need Donald Trump to pick someone like that. And I would argue that Nikki Haley is a great choice. I would argue Ron DeSantis would be, but that's definitely not going to happen. Nikki Haley might. Maybe. People like that. Byron Donalds, I really like, the congressman from Florida. So we actually have quite a few options, whereas the Democrats don't have any, unless they go ahead and backstab the president. And speaking of Byron Donalds, he made a good point on Fox Business today because the the other issue that Republicans are now contending with on the folks who want to root for Joe Biden, perhaps in this case is not directly tied to concerns about his age, but a D.C. judge deciding that a trial for Donald Trump in the January 6th case is going to happen on March 4th, the day before Super Tuesday, that is intended to help Joe Biden. It's certainly intended to hurt Donald Trump, and he called it out on Fox Business. This is nuts, and what this judge in D.C. is doing is worse because she actually is playing politics. To be honest with you, Maria, I've never seen a court move this fast to bring a trial. All the way I've seen it move this fast is that the defendant requests it, but that's not what's occurred here. She wants to interfere in this election, and she is using her courtroom to do it. And that's pretty darn obvious, and I made this point today of Marshawn Lynch last August is arrested and accused with DUI in Las Vegas. His trial date is in November. Okay, I think it's November 3rd. So a very simple cut and dry case that's only supposed to last about two days, if that, gets over a year. But with Donald Trump, he has until March. He just found out this this week. And his team has to go over millions of pages of documents and tens of thousands of hours worth of video evidence. So tell me how this isn't interference with the intention of helping a struggling Joe Biden. You're not going to be able to. 1-800-465-8770 if you want to send me a text message. 1-800-465-8770. Don't forget, I'll be on Hannity later this evening. And if you miss me this morning on Varney and Company, I'll post the video up on our social media channels. You're listening to The Jason Rant Show.